as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. And if I could uh, give you some points to hold on to as we go through this section, which is a really awesome section, I would give you these three things. Number one, Jesus and the lame man. So we're going to see the the conversation, the cure, uh, when Jesus encounters this lame man. Number two, Jesus and the legalistic man. And that's the the Jewish religious leaders. They're very legalistic, and we're going to see their exchange as well. And then we're going to see Jesus, son of God and son of man. And so part of the reason, and it's not easy, you know, but I want to, like, give you guys things that you can at least hold on to, and maybe it's short-term memory, so you can chew on these things. But to me, it's cool going through this, because last week we went over the fact that we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus, and it's such a beautiful thing to be able to study his life, and hopefully as we get to know who he is and how he is, then we get peace. And so look what we read here in John 5 in verse 1. It says, after this, and so this is probably an extended period of time between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there was a feast of the Jews. And we don't know what feast it was. People guess. We don't know. But it says right here, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches or five colonnades, they're covered areas. And in these, it says, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. Think about that. Waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Again, we don't know what feast this is, but it's kind of enlightening, I think, for me anyways, to see the way that Jesus didn't forsake the fellowship. When it was time for a feast, whether it be the Feast of Passover, a Feast of Purim, whatever it might be, uh, Jesus showed up. He kept the feasts. Warren Wiersbe leans towards this being the Feast of Purim or Esther, which is kind of interesting because that was a feast that wasn't required of the Jews. And so, you know, Jesus, though, think about it, he didn't stay home. I mean, he showed up. You know, he showed up for the feast. And so he mentions here that he goes in, in verse 2, by the sheep gate. And so if you were to look at a map or if you go to Israel, you would see it's in the northern portion, not far, right there, caddy corner to the temple. And so, again, it's kind of cool for those of you who have gone to Israel, some of you guys have, you've been there. We've actually been to this place uh, called Bethesda. Um, The word, it means house of kindness or house of mercy. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does about, you know, who Jesus is, right? He's so kind. He's so merciful, But as he enters in through the sheep gate, because I know, we know he's a shepherd, right? It's so crazy what he sees right here. The the multitude of people who are sick and lame and blind and paralyzed. What an awful sight when you think about it. You know, what we read right here is they're all gathered together for this specific reason. It says again in in verse 4 that an angel would go down at a certain time in the pool 
and he would stir up the water. And it says right here that whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. William Barclay said beneath the pool was a subterranean stream which every now and again bubbled up and disturbed the waters. And so the belief was that the disturbance was caused by an angel and that the first person to get into the pool after the troubling of the water would be healed from any illness from which he was suffering. So, so can you visualize that? There's this pool. There's actually two pools if you go there. There's two pools of water. And so whenever it would bubble up, now they thought it was an angel. William Barclay says a subterranean uh, you know, uh, provision of air. We don't know for sure, but whenever it bubbled up, the first person to go in, it says, was healed. Now either A, it was just a legend, or B, it actually happened. And I'm of the opinion that it actually happened, because otherwise, why would they have been there for so long? And so Pastor Chuck, as I was listening to him on this, and he was saying that more than likely what's going on right here is just the, the power of faith, the power of faith. You know, when you have that faith that, that God can heal, not that he always does, but sometimes that's part of the healing. Sometimes that's part of being made powerful when, when we have faith. Remember the woman who was sick with the flow of blood? Do you guys remember that story? And she said, you know what? I just know that if I can touch the hem of his garment, even though she had spent all her money on physicians and was, you know, wasn't healed, she had done everything she could you know, for 12 years, she knew that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she'd be made, made, made well, well, well. And so um, that's exactly what she did. She worked her way through the crowd and she was able to touch Jesus, and boom, Jesus said, stop, hold on. Power just came out of me. And that's the power of faith, you guys, and we need to have that. I mean, God can heal you. God can move any mountain. God can do anything. I'm not saying he's obligated to, or he always does. It's up to him, according to his will. 1 John 5.14 says that. But man, don't be a doubter. Don't be a quencher. We have to believe that God is able to do this. And so, you know, there's other times that were kind of trippy when you read through the scriptures. There was that one time when uh, the Bible says that if people were just in the shadow of Peter, they would get healed. Or they talked about how they would take the sweat bands from Paul the Apostle and they would, you know, distribute it and whoever touched it was healed. I mean, what, what's that? Again, I have a hunch that Pastor Chuck is right on this, that this is a, these are just examples of what can happen when there's faith. And so more than likely, the, the bubbles come up and person goes in and some of them, I'll bet you, got saved because they really believed it was God. And so um, with this setting, with this you know, people there in that place, it's interesting to me because in chapter 4, Jesus goes to meet the, the woman at the well, one woman at the well. Now he goes to this place, I think primarily to meet one man he wanted to make well. And that's what we read here in verse 5. It says, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But 
While I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And so a whole bunch of people there in the midst of this crowd of crippled people, there was a certain man with an infirmity, it says in verse 5. The, the word, it literally means without strength, diseased, or sick. The NIV translates it interesting. It says this, that, this, that one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. An invalid. Think about that. Now, I don't want to take away from the actual physical miracle Jesus does, proving who he is as the Messiah, but there are greater miracles to be done spiritually, and we're going to see when I, when I think of this word invalid, I don't know if there's anyone here who feels like an invalid spiritually. You almost sometimes, we almost sometimes feel like I'm invalid. I am. And the Lord, he comes and he, and he, he speaks to me. I don't know about you, but he asks me, hey, um, do you want to be made Well? Do you want to be made? You're not walking the way you should be walking as a Christian. And you know it. And it's been that way for a long time. It's been that way for 38 years. You know, some say that this is actually symbolic of the Jews when they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. Now, some say, no, in time out, man, it was 40 years. No, two years they were getting the the law, when Moses was there at Mount Sinai. But for 38 years, they wandered in the wilderness. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of Christians, unfortunately, who are not walking the way they should be walking. And so, you know, you might feel like an invalid, or you might feel invalid, or things are going on in your life, and it's just a difficult time. Um, The question Jesus asked there in verse 6 is, do you want to be made well? And, I, and that word, it means whole, you know. Something's missing in my life. You know, this is a pilgrim's progress. This is a journey. This is a walk. There should be growth in our life. We should be walking with God. You know, today as I was reading through the Bible in a year, it talked about in Genesis chapter 3 how God walked in the garden and walk, God was walking in the midst of the garden. So that means that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were walking with God. And so when the fall comes, then the question is, how's my walk? How is your walk with God? You know, to walk with someone, when I walk with my wife or I walk with friends, it is one of the most wonderful experiences. I think, I don't know why, it's good for you, you know, exercise, but there's something about the talk, there's something about the fellowship that takes place when you're walking with someone. For us, we're supposed to be walking with God. But unfortunately, there are some like the lame man, you know, for 38 years, not walking. And so Jesus shows up and Jesus says, hey, uh, let me ask you a question. Do you want to be made well? And then what do we do? Well, well, it just can't happen. You know what, Lord? I got saved, you know, 38 years ago, Lord, and whatever. It's been a long time, and this has happened, and that's happened. And you've got a thousand excuses for this. This man right here, he said, you know what, sir? I would, you know, bottom line is when, when, the, when the water 
gets stirred up and, and the bubbles rise. There's no one to help me and someone always beats me and it's not going to happen to me. The man basically had come to a place where he had accepted his condition. And he basically said, there's no hope for me. This is as far as I will ever get as a Christian. And so a lot of times I think we make excuses. I can't. I can't. It's just it's not for me. Maybe for them, but not for me. I got no one to put me into the pool when the bubbles come up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says, hey, let me heal you so I can show everybody else what I can do. And he commanded him to rise and take up his bed and walk. And that's what God will do in our life. Now, sometimes I think, even think in my life, for example, when I got saved and God just zapped me. He doesn't do that for everybody, but he shows that he can do it for everybody. And what we find right here is the Lord proves that he is the Messiah. Isaiah 35, 1 through 7, it prophesied that the days would come when the lame would walk and they would leap like a deer. This guy got healed, Right? And so it's a beautiful story. You figure everything would go well. But notice again what we read there in John chapter 5. It says in verse 9, And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And so uh, dealing with the lame man, I don't want to go too far from that before I just make sure that I, I just encourage you guys. Maybe you feel invalid. Maybe you feel lame. Maybe you feel like you're not walking like you should. As the new year starts and whatever, I mean, it's an opportunity. Someone, some, someone said that the Christian life is simply a series of new beginnings. Maybe you need a new beginning today. Jesus is here to give you that, that wholeness. Look to him. Stay focused on him. Let him do his work. And so you go from the cure to the controversy. You go from the lame man now to the legalistic man. Because watch what happens in verse 10. It says, The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Well, he answered them, Well, he who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, Well, who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a a multitude being in that place. And so um, it's a mat, you know, it's just this little mat that he rolls up and he's carrying around. And uh, apparently he got busted by the Sabbath police. And so... (laughs) They rebuked him for carrying his bed. And he, and he explained it's justifiable. Well, the guy who made me walk, they, they knew who he was because like I said, they went through the sheep gate. It's right there by the temple. I bet you they saw this guy all the time, 38 years, unable to walk. And now he's walking and all they can ask him is, hey, why are you carrying your mat? Why are you carrying your bed? That's all they could say. You know, what, what we read earlier is true. There were people there that were lame. There are people there that were blind. You know, some people, even in the church, they can't see God. God is here. God is here, and he's able to do amazing things. They can't hear God because they're deaf. These guys were blind. These guys were lost. And these guys were the religious leaders of the day. 
You know, it's crazy when you read it. They drilled them. Who told you to take up your bed and walk? I mean, it would have been better for them to ask him, whoa, how are you walking? Bro, I mean, that should have been their encouragement. But, you know, that's what happens when you're legalistic. And I think it's so cool to know the Bible, man. It's so cool to know, you know, that if I'm lame, God can make me whole. That it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your finances are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what genetics are. It doesn't matter what your mental condition is. It doesn't matter anything. It doesn't matter where you come from. That, that Jesus Christ can make you walk and run and fly so cool to know the Bible for us lame men. But it's so important for us to also know the Bible when it comes to legalism. Because that's what these guys were. They were so crazy, religious, and legalistic. You know, when you guys read the scriptures, you know the Ten Commandments, right? One of them is about keeping the Sabbath day. But when you read the scriptures, you know, you you see, especially for us New Testament Christians, that that command is not necessarily repeated in the New Testament. You can use any day to keep the Sabbath. But but, but when you read it, it says the Sabbath was made for man to give us rest. But what they did is they took the Ten Commandments and they made 612 commandments upon them. And it's a crazy thing to see the way that these guys got so lost in their rules and regulations. One person said this, the Sabbath was a central issue in the conflicts between Jesus and his opponents. The Mosaic law required that work cease on the seventh day. Additional laws were then added by Jewish religious authorities, which came very complicated and burdensome. These human traditions often obscured the divine intention in God's law. The Sabbath was made for man, the Bible says in Mark 2, 27, so that he could have had rest and time for worship and joy. The Jews' rigid tradition, not the Old Testament, taught that if anyone carried anything from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath intentionally, he deserved death by stoning. Think about that. And so here's this man, just got healed, carrying his mat, in, in danger of being stoned to death. You guys, that's what's going to happen when legalism comes into your life. A bunch of rules and regulations. Be so careful with that. Be so careful. That's why it's important for you and I to know the Bible for ourselves. Because you want to know what this book is? It is the law of liberty. Romans chapter 8, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, we're not free to sin. We're free from sin, but we know that if whoever it is, a pastor or whoever it is that tells me anything that goes beyond the Bible, well, that might be his personal conviction, but it's not clearly taught in the script. This right here, it, it gives us freedom. Think about it, taking one law and making hundreds of laws upon that. The, the Jews, you know, it was the word of men. You know, if you were a tailor and you carried a needle in your jacket, you were in sin. 
If you wore false teeth, you were in sin. If you did it on the Sabbath day. If you had a wooden leg, you couldn't use it on a Sabbath day. They just added all these rules and regulations. So much so that what ended up happening was they got lost in it. They got, you know, they thought, well, this is, this is how I am accepted by God. Rather than having a personal, intimate relationship with God. It was just a religion. And if you got a guy, and let's just say you make a thousand rules, and let's just say the guy keeps the thousand rules, then what happens to him? Well, he, get, he climbs up the religious ladder. Next thing you know, he's whatever, the pope or the high priest or one of those guys up there you know, that's serving next to the high priest in the Sanhedrin or whatever it is. And, and that, that's where their religion was. And then the one day when Jesus comes in front of them, they're never going to be able to see him. And so um, they're dealing with who told you to carry that mat, these legalistic people. I hate legalism. I hate it when some people judge others because they don't keep the rules that they themselves have for themselves. And it just, man, it, it just, it's a drag. Be so careful with legalistic people. Verse 14, it says, afterward, Jesus found the man. He found him in the temple. And he said to him, see, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. And so we're, we're still dealing with the lame man. We haven't left him yet. We've got to finish the, the story with the lame man. You know, I, I think it's good that the lame man was in the temple. I think it's good that Jesus found him in the temple. Like I told you guys, you know, we need to gather together. You know, if I were to tell you to be in church on Sundays, um, I don't know how you would feel about that. Uh, some people might say, well, that's your legalism. You know, that's you and your rule. And I would say, well, yeah, going to church on Sundays doesn't save you. And it doesn't make you a better person than the one next to you, per se. But, but the Bible does say in Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling. And I think as we gather together, like Jesus would go on the Sabbath or Jesus would go on the feast, that it, that it, it shows something, that we're a body. Now, we need this fellowship. And so, you know, ever since I got saved, I've had this conviction to be there, to be here on Sundays. Here's this man. He gets healed. He's in the temple. And, and it's a good thing. It, is, it really is a good thing. It's kind of cool. Jesus finds him there. But as he finds him there, he gives him a, a warning. And it's a heavy warning. He says to the man, you've been made well. That's a really cool thing. But here, I need to tell you this, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And I think we need to take that to heart. You know, we're not sure, but there is a possibility that this man's sin was the reason for his infirmity in the first place. You know, he needed to know that the grace which was shown to him was not a license to continue in sin, but to turn from his sin, lest something worse come upon him. That implies degrees of discipline. There's different portions of punishment, maybe even a warning about hell. 
You know, sin no more, Jesus said. Now, I was reminded that there's, a, there's two people that I can think of right off the top of my head who were in the hospital because they were drinking. And I remember one time going and visiting one of the brothers and he said, hey, you know, he's a Christian and he's drinking. And, uh, and he almost died. And, and it shouldn't have been that way, but um, for whatever reason, God you know, allowed him to be disciplined. And, uh, and thank God, you know, since then, he hasn't drank. Is that how you say it? Drank or drunk? One of those, right? Because maybe he understands this warning. God's dealing with me. Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. You know, sometimes, you know, the things that we deal with are because of the sins that we've committed. I've spoken to some people recently, and God's gotten, uh, gotten their attention. Prayerfully, they stay in that place of repentance. Because here's the warning. Next time you might die. And so for us, it's important to sin no more. You know, that's always our goal. Later in John chapter 8, that's the same thing Jesus is going to tell the, the woman caught in adultery. You know, I, I'm not going to judge you right now, but I am going to tell you this, sin no more. It's important for us to learn those lessons. That's always got to be our goal. And so here's this man. Jesus finds him in the temple. He says, hey, you've been made well. That's cool, but don't abuse grace. Sin no more. Let that be your goal. Let something worse come upon you. Now, I also need to make sure it's very important for us to know that all sickness and suffering, it's not always because of our sin. You know, sometimes it's not necessarily because you've done something wrong. Sometimes it's because maybe you've done something right. For example, I think of Job, who was targeted by the enemy because he was so right on, because he loved God. Or I think of even of... You know, you got, you got, you know, James and John and, you know, one dies and the other doesn't. I mean, it's because he's done something right, not wrong. And so we have to be careful with stuff like that. Later on, we're going to see in John chapter 9, when this man was born blind, the disciples asked Jesus, well, who sinned, him or his parents? And he said, neither. It's not always because of sin. Sometimes it is. And so that's for us to be able to go before the Lord and say, Lord, if you're going through difficulties, if you're, get, you're sick, whatever it might be, it's okay to ask him, Lord, is this because of I've done something wrong? And if it is, he will tell you. He will make it clear. Because we would never spank our children without explaining why. But you have to ask him. And then you'll see the communication. You know, so, you know, Jesus, you know, I talks to the guy. What does the guy do? He goes and he, and he goes to the religious leaders. Hey, it was Jesus. This guy that just rebuked me. He's the one. Go get him. <laughs> you know, it's a trip. When I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I read the story here, here's what I think. This man had been made well by the Lord and, and he goes to the temple and he's talking to his religious leaders And I believe that there's this inclination inside of us to go towards religion. And you have to fight it tooth and nail. Well, let me get in good with the religious leaders. Let me get in good with the Pharisees. Let me get in good, you know, with that part of whatever, you know, the the, the church. You know, for whatever reason, we have that inclination that we have to fight it. Listen, don't go towards religion. Fall in love with God. Let it be this relationship that you have with him. 
You know, we learn from the lame man, and then we learn from the legalistic. We go from the cure to the controversy. Notice what it says right here. In verse 15, the man departed, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And verse 16 just trips me out. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? That they would then persecute him and want to kill him because of that. And so I pray we learn from these things, you guys. Learn from them. It's okay to have your personal convictions. You know, there are certain things that I can't watch because I don't want to put that in my mind in any way. I'll run as far away from it as I can. But maybe you can for whatever reason. That's between you and the Lord. There's certain music that, that I, I refuse to listen to. But I'm not going to judge you I'm not going to be up here preaching my personal convictions. There's a certain amount of time that I want to pray. There's a certain way that I read the Bible. There's a certain way that I follow God. They're my convictions, not yours. We should all have those convictions. There's a principle of seeking God and praying and reading the Bible. We have to make sure that we don't impose those on others because if you get caught up in a rules-only relationship with God, you will never really enter beyond the superficial religion. And we have to go way beyond that. We have to. And so beware of legalism. We go from now Jesus and the lame man, Jesus and the legalistic man, and then Jesus, son of God and son of man. Look what it says in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, as they want to kill him and persecute him. He says, my father has been working until now. Oh, let, you know, let me back up a little bit. Verse 16, yeah. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You know, they didn't want anyone working on the Sabbath, you know, but Jesus explained to them, you know, my father's always working, and me too. You know, and so when you, when you read that, again, now it's even adding more fuel to their fire because now they're furious because Jesus is making a statement, essentially saying that he's equal with God. And they understood it. And so, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I am glad that God doesn't take a day off. You know, he takes care of us every single day. Philo said God never ceases doing, but as it is the property of fire to burn and snow to chill, so it is the property of God to do. And what we find right here is we get into this section, um, it's deep and I can't cover everything, but what we're going to see right here is this beautiful thing in which Jesus identifies himself as the son of God, identifies himself as the son of man, and in doing so, he identifies himself as the Christ. And we get to see a little bit about his relationship with his father. 
And so for us, remember last week we went over that passage, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. To me, when I, when I see this right here, I'm like, Lord, it's so beautiful just to see you, Jesus. Jesus who heals the lame man. Jesus who is so loving, not legalistic. And, and Jesus, just who you are. Just who you are. You're the giver of life. You're the, you're the judge we're going to see. You know, so much here how he is the Christ. You know, Jesus' reference to God as his father. Um, now, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but I do need to say this. We're used to it. You know, we have the model prayer. You guys remember the model prayer? It says, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They, they didn't pray that way. Believe it or not, to them, it was foreign to really call God father. And so, again, for us, we, we don't see it the way the Jews saw it. They're like, whoa, whoa, he just called God his father. They were, they were tripping out. And so, right here, it says in verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. See, we understand, as we read the Bible, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. We understand this. Equal in essence and nature but not in function and office because the Father is highest in order. There's, there's order even within the Godhead. But now we only know it because of the way that the Lord has revealed it. You know, Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, he wasn't, it wasn't like God the Father had celestial sex, like the, you know, the Mormons might say. It wasn't that. It wasn't God the Father made him like the, like the Jehovah Witnesses might say. No, he's not an angel created. He's God the Son. He wouldn't be God if he wasn't eternal. There is this thing that we have, this mystery of the Trinity, God revealing himself to us. And why is he called the Son? It's because of this relationship that they have. If you have any children, you have any children, you're beginning to understand a little bit about this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Always, this relationship. And it says right there that, you know, my father loves me. You know, that's what Jesus said. The, the father loves the son. And he, and he shows him everything. That's what fathers do with their sons. That's what parents do with their children. They show them everything. He says, I got to be working because I'm just following my father's example. He's always working, so I'm always working because I'm not like you or them or whatever. I'm, I'm God the son. I'm always working. Just like the Father's always working. And he's shown me what to do. I don't do anything of my own volition. No, I just do whatever the Father tells me to do, whatever the Father shows me to do. And he says right there, and he's going to show me even greater things. You guys are going to see it, even greater things, so that you might marvel. Now, why, why does he want us to marvel? Why did he want them to marvel? So that they'd believe. That's why. Not to impress them, but so that they would believe in him. If we think about what's going on right here, Jesus is reaching out to them. But 
They're deaf. They're blind. Their hearts are hard. Their hearts are closed. And they can't see God working right in front of them. You know, here we see the Lord say some awesome things in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You know, these religious leaders, they, they didn't know what was going on. And there was God the Son in their, in their presence. And, you know, the Father had given his Son this authority to, to give life, think about it, to whoever he wants. Think about that. You know, to be able to give life, to be able to save. And the Father said, and by the way, I don't know if you guys knew this, but one day when people stand before God as judge, it's not going to be before the Father, it's going to be before Jesus. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, then you don't honor the Father who sent him. And what we find right here is important things for us to understand as Christians. You know, what we find God's revelation is only because of his desire for salvation. Verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. And that right there, believe it or not, is salvation. Boom, the moment you get saved. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Now, again, this is huge for the Jews because the son of man was clearly the messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. They knew that that was the, 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 the title of the Christ. And when you read Daniel 7, you have all this chaos, all this craziness, all this governments of the world and all their powers, and then boom, one day the son of man shows up the king and that's who we're ready for next and so as he's sharing these things with them they know what he's saying verse 28 do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice think about whose voice jesus voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What's Jesus doing here, you guys? What's he saying? He's identifying who he is. He's identifying, you know, the whole thing about, about the resurrection. There's a, there's a resurrection of the just. There's a resurrection of the unjust. You read the book of Revelation chapter 20, and it talks about both there in verse 6 and 13. And, and what we find is that the resurrection of the just, it actually begins at the rapture. And so, you guys, when we 
pass away, we immediately go into the presence of God. But our bodies, in one sense, they stay in the grave. But when the rapture happens, our bodies will be resurrected. And then we're going to be rejoined with our bodies. We'll have our everlasting body. And then everyone who dies from that point is part of the first resurrection. But the second resurrection is talked about in Revelation 21, where the sea gives up the dead and all. Those are the ones that stand before the great white throne. There's two resurrections, those that go to heaven and those who go to hell. And so as Jesus is talking to them, who he is, the son of God, the son of man, the giver of life, the judge of the world, what is, why is he telling them this about heaven and hell and all this kind of stuff? He's telling them, so that they would be saved. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting verse. If you jump over to verse 34, we'll, we'll cover it, Lord willing, next week. But look what it says in John 5, uh, verse 34. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He's saying these things so that these guys would be saved. You know, and I know that's always God's heart. You know, maybe there's someone here today who has not yet given their life to Christ. Or there's maybe someone that you and I, we need to take this message to and tell them these things because it's so important for us to understand, you know, who Jesus is and, and how he is. I pray, you guys, we would have this heart and that we would be able to share the word of God with those who know the Lord and those who don't. Look at verse 29 again. And, and, and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now when you read that right there, you might say, well, it seems like you know someone is saved if they, if they do good. But of course we know as we read the scriptures that salvation is by faith and what we find is that doing good is not the root of salvation, but it is, it is the fruit of salvation. As a matter of fact, Jesus even said, as we went through our text right here, that we need to believe in him who sent Jesus. And so as we place our faith in Christ, we're placing our faith in the Father. And as we do this, then you and I are saved by faith. So in point number one, Jesus and the lame man. And hopefully we are encouraged the way Jesus can cure. Point number two, Jesus and the legalistic man. Beware. Beware of legalism. And then number three, Jesus, son of God and son of man. My encouragement to you is to believe. That's how we're saved. One day we'll be home in heaven. Imagine what that resurrection of life is going to be like. It's going to be amazing. Are you guys excited that you're going to be in heaven one day? The rapture might happen at any time. You're on your way. You're going to take as many people with you as you can. Or you're going to just kick back Cracker Jack. No, let's do this, you guys.